My guest today is the president of Sailfish, a Sandler sales development business. He's also the author of Making the Climb, from salesperson to sales manager and beyond. And here's what some of his clients say about him. His sales leadership, negotiation skills and business acumen are exemplary. Peter's strongest attribute is his ability to relate and closely bond with clients. Here's another one. He has a razor sharp intellect and is a true sales professional. What I appreciate more about Pete is his integrity, his work ethic and true drive to help his clients succeed and making marked difference in the way they conduct their business. Every dollar we've spent with Pete has been worth every cent. Here's another one. If you want to make your sales force more reliable, more consistent and more productive, Pete is the guy that can do that. Pete is an outstanding instructor who has clear success story and product of the courses he provides. We meet very few people in our lives who inspire us. Pete Oliver is one of these people. Peter is masterful at enabling people to try new things, break comfort zones, and to crush uncrushable goals. Pete Oliver, you're very welcome to the podcast. Well, I appreciate that. I don't know where you got all those quotes from. Maybe. But your LinkedIn profile. They're on your LinkedIn profile. Thank That's you. it. Yeah. It was no, it's, easy. I think we're, I'm fortunate. I get up Monday morning and get to help our clients figure out how to be successful at what they do. It's a really fun way to go about your work day and, and yeah. pretty lucky to be a part of their journey. So it's, it's great yeah. to hear them say that. Cool. Well, it's interesting because I'd like to go back and find out how you get to that point. And it's, I was thinking about this earlier and I've known you for a few years. We've met many times over those years. But, it, but when you ask yourself, actually, I don't know that much about you. I, I, I know you grew up in Boston. I know you lived in Hawaii. And I know you're in Florida at the moment. Other than that, I can't say. And I know you're highly successful. But when you dig down, I, I, I don't know that much. Shame on me. So uh, you did grow up in Boston, I believe. I grew up in correct? New York. And then oh, I you to... see, there, there you go. I even got that one wrong, eh? <laughs> yeah, I was born in Cooperstown, New York. Grew up in okay. upstate New York and then went to school in Boston. I knew at a pretty young age I wanted to go to school in Boston because I was a Red Sox fan. And my parents exposed me to Boston and the ocean, which is Cape Cod and the North Shore of Boston. Yeah, yeah. And I wanted to so, go to school in Boston. So, but when you say go to school, are you talking tertiary or secondary school or primary school? University. 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 Got it. Okay. Yeah. So you were in New York to what age? 18. Okay. You don't have a New York accent. Upstate New York is different than the city, for sure. I, I grew up in a very okay. small town. We had a graduating class yeah. of 120 people. And grew up playing a lot of sports. Grew up yeah. learning at a young age that hard work was important. Saw my dad do mm. it. Saw him work mm. really weird shifts so that he could watch his kids play sports in the afternoons and in the evenings and and decided at a pretty young age, frankly, I wanted to be in sales. I knew that very young, that I wanted to be involved in the sales profession. I want to talk to you about that. Um, how did you know? What did, what did you see that gave you that sense that this is for me? Well, I was about, I don't know, 12 years old and and I was trying to figure out how I was going to make a little bit of extra money. 
I wanted to buy some baseball cards at the time. And I saw some of my friends getting jobs at Subway and places like that. And my dad said, well, you have a lawnmower. Why don't you just go knock on some doors? And I bet you make more money doing that in a shorter period of time than you would getting a job working for somebody else. Mm. And I said, okay. So very quickly realized that if, if I do some things in the beginning that are somewhat uncomfortable, I can become more comfortable because of it. And so I did that. I started knocking on doors and I got a bunch of lawns that I mowed and, and I liked it. I thought it was a pretty, and I was only working three, four hours a week. And my, my friends were working three, four times that to make the same money. So that was like pretty eye opening to me. And my dad taught me that lesson very early. Mm. That's interesting though. It's well, is that, I mean, we're both in, in the same business essentially. And yet every seller I come across who's at the top of their game has a story similar to yours, as in knocking on doors or doing paper rounds. But they were out early and, 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 and they learned to relate to people, take rejection, overcome the discomfort of knocking on a stranger's door uh, long before they ever got into sales. And it's something I'd like to explore with you as well, which is, can, if that's not there, can you train it? I, I believe you can, but only if the person is willing to change. Because the, the mindset mm. is going to be in a, not in a so, so great place. There's so much head trash around mm. the selling profession that the only way you're going to get out of that paradox is if you do something about it. So the people that can overcome that and do something that's in, in the moment somewhat uncomfortable, mm. then they can pretty quickly realize. And part of it too is mindset. Like I think a lot of us see the stereotype of, what a salesperson is expected to do. And they think about uh, an uncomfortable situation where somebody was trying to sell them something. But one of the things I realized really early on was if they need our help, it would actually be wrong for us to not ask in some cases. Mm. And if they don't need our help, fine, we'll go, we'll go knock on the next door. But when people over time, you start to realize, geez, I would love some help mowing my lawn. I'm so glad you knocked on the door. And then you might get four or five that don't need it. And all of a sudden you're, you're like, okay, cool. I get to help these people. And really, I think anybody that's good at sales, they figured that out, that their, their job in life really is to try to figure out what other people need and help them get it. And mm. I think if you, and people, I think genuinely do like helping other people. Yeah. And anybody that's good at selling, I think that's what we're doing. Mm. Okay, so I can see where the sense of selling and sense of self as a seller comes from. Did you ever consider any other professions as you, when you were going through college? I did. At one point, well, I, I started out as a pre-med major and realized really fast that that, that was not going to work. And then I thought maybe I'd become a teacher and a coach because I, I oh. always loved that that element. I had some really good mentors as a kid that were teachers and coaches. My brother actually ended up going into that profession. And, but the money thing was also motivating to me in addition to helping people. So I figured those two professions, sales and creating value were, 
were in alignment, which meant that there, there might have been an opportunity to, to, to make some more money. So I, I chose the selling profession pretty early. Okay. So tell me then about your first professional selling role. Well, in college, I sold autographs in Fenuel Hall in Boston at a, a memorabilia store. I sold t-shirts to frat houses. Uh, those were informal selling roles, I would say. Yeah. Then my first professional selling role, I worked for a company called Aramark and we provided uniforms to industries like Pepsi, Coke, companies like that. I did that for three or four years, which was great. And then my first technology sales job was for a company called Corporate Software. And I was about 26 when I got that role. Okay. Those first roles that you spoke about, they seem to me to be very high touch sales roles. There's no way you could have done it from behind a keyboard. You had to be out and talking to people, right? Definitely, a lot of rejection. Yeah. And um, then you said, sorry, corporate, sorry, what software, there was a software company you went to next. How was that different selling a more complex product than it was selling memorabilia and, and uniforms? You know, what was interesting about that is when I, when I got the job, it was an inside sales role. It was a BDR role. So basically mm. picking up the phone, calling people that were on our prospect list and attempting to set appointments for our outside reps to go meet with these folks. Mm. And I expected that that initial part of the journey was going to be a lot of product knowledge because I didn't, I didn't know anything about technology at the time. Uh, not a lot of people did, frankly. I mean, when I got that role, it was, it was 2001, 20 years ago, 21 years ago when I got that first yeah. technology sales role. But I learned really fast that, from a Sandler mentor, frankly, that it's not about that. It's about understanding what the clients need. Like you, you, there's more value for the information that you gather versus the information that you give. And it blew my mind. And at that point, I already was pretty lucky. With my previous company, I had Miller Hyman. I had solution selling. So I, I was used to trying to figure out how to deal with a complex buying situation, but I hadn't done it in a technology world at that point. And mm. that head trash that I had about having to be the technology expert evaporated in the first month I was with that client. It was very lucky to get that out of my system as early as I did. Mm. Tell me then at a personal level, what, what really motivates you? Oh, what motivates me? My goals, I'm very goal driven. I want to live the life that my family wants to live. I want to be able to do what I want, when I want. I want to have balance and I want to help people. So I want to help myself. I want to help my family. I want to help our clients. So all of those are motivating to me. And when you couple that balance of understanding like where you want to go with the balance of what you want to do on a daily basis, that's consistent with what you love. And you can find a way to bring those two things together. I, th I think that's really what drives and motivates me. I'm always curious about the, the people who say they're, they're very goal driven because you do meet people in life who are quite successful and they're kind of say, look, serendipity is, is, is their only driver. Things just arrive. Um, what is it about being goal driven for you is, is so important? Well, it, 
it's I, w- I played a lot of sports growing up. We I was on some pretty successful sports teams, and, and I saw what hard work got you. I, I could see the day to day, and then the outcome of that down the road, mm-hmm. and then how good it felt when you accomplished something that you set out for. And I also, I mean, at one point in my life, I wanted to go to Boston University, right? And we didn't have a lot of money growing up and BU at that point was 25 grand a year. And there was, there was no money to pay for any of the hundred thousand dollars plus all the other stuff that goes along with going mm. to college in a big city. And I told my dad, I go, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to go to, I'm going to go to BU. I don't, I don't know how it's going to happen, but it's going to happen. And he, he was supportive, but he, he also couldn't be, he didn't believe that it was going to happen. And I tried to get a scholarship through ROTC. That didn't happen. I tried to get uh, a scholarship through soccer. That didn't happen. But I kept going and I kept trying. And then all of a sudden we get this letter in the mail that said that your, your well-roundedness, your, your athletic ability, we're going to give you three quarters of the $100,000. And so all I had to do was take out a 25 K loan at the time. And I saw the look on my dad's face. He was, he, he, he goes, Pete, I just can't believe it. I can't believe you did it. And he started crying. I started crying. And that really taught me like you can, you can achieve some goals that you didn't think were possible. And all of a sudden, you know, two months later, or three months later, it's I'm off to, I'm off to Boston university, which is the school I wanted to go to. It was my number one pick. So I, you can will yourself into getting what you want if where you are is less comfortable with where you want to be. And the goal in of itself really, in my opinion, is not the reason why people that say they're good at goal setting actually accomplish it. It's the fact that they know the reason behind the goal that's important. Uh-huh. And, uh-huh. and and I, I, that's frankly a lot of what we try to train our clients to do is, is, to, is uh-huh. to tap into the, that personal vision. And then get to a place where it's so clear, you just you just have to do it. It's you want to do it, but you also have to do it because that's that's what you've already predetermined is going to happen, which is what led us to Hawaii too. Talk to me about the trait you most admire in your parents that you've in, that you've inherited. Oh, they two things: one, the hard work from my dad, and then just they're so supportive. They, you can do whatever you want, Pete. Whatever you're, I, I just believe that you're going to accomplish whatever you want. They're so supportive to the point where I was 20 years old. And this, this is a little crazy thinking back about the fact that they allowed us to do this. But when I was 20, me and my 14 year old brother drove cross country in a Chevy S10 pickup truck for a month and a half. They let me take my 14 year old brother on a trip across the country to go to go to 30 states over a summer, the summer between my junior and senior year in college. Like imagine that, like now I actually do believe I can do anything I want because they entrusted in me to take my 14 year old brother across country on a trip that neither one of us will ever forget. So the fact that they trusted us, they believed in us. And then I saw what hard work for them meant in in my life and in my brother's life. So that would be, those would be the biggest for me. 
Man, Peter, I'm getting a lump in my throat just listening to that. That's, that's really powerful. There's a refrain there as well. I've had other guests on the show who've been very successful and so many of them point to that other. We, we mentioned about the importance of the lessons from the street, shall we call it, knocking on doors and the, those, those kind of knocks that you get and successes, but also the power and, and privilege of supportive parents, parents who believe in you, that it's not, that's just, you, you, it's so hard to get that. And if it's not there, it's very hard. You can't read it in a book. No, you can't. It's, it, there has to be, whether it's parents or uncles or teachers, mm. some, some form of mentor that allows you to see uh, what's possible and get you to believe in that too. And That's it. I think you can get that through a lot of different ways, but obviously the, the, the most powerful one is, is, is a parent, parental yeah. figure. Actually, you say you're, you're, you're absolutely right. It, it can, from, from early life, I guess it's from parental figures, right? People who love us and are in authority. But later on in life, I'm, I was just thinking about it, and maybe it's where a lot of those testimonials I read about you come from as well, is that the role you play as a mentor in believing in people and believing more in them sometimes than they believe in themselves at that moment is probably the greatest gift you can give to somebody. Not so much about the content, but, but about the belief. Agree or disagree? 100% agree. Hundred percent. I happen to be. This is anecdotal. I happen to be watching a documentary right now on Tom Brady, who's a, a the best football quarterback that ever lived. Maybe the best winning athlete that ever lived. And early on in his career, he was a backup quarterback for Drew Bledsoe, who at the time was the was a hundred. He was the first person to make over a hundred million dollars on a contract. Just signed it the year before. Second game of the season, Blood Bledsoe gets critically in, injured, and he's he had to take six weeks off. Brady comes in and excels. Bledsoe's available now to come back and take his job back. And Belichick, the coach, said, "No, Brady, you're keeping the job." Like imagine right. now, Brady Brady actually believes in himself because Belichick believes in him, and. I think that's probably one of the reasons why Brady excelled the way that he did because he had to live up to that belief. Like when other people around you believe in you, it's almost like, man, now you got to live up to the fact that other people yeah. believe in you. And I think we know yeah. that a lot of times we, that's partially why we want to set some goals and then tell people about it mm. because you don't want to let the other people down. And mm. when people believe in you from the start, that, that, that's very motivating when you have people around you mm. that believe in you. Yeah. Yeah. You said something that's really, really powerful there. And it, and it resonated with me because I had a guest on the show a couple of weeks ago. Uh, she's Indian, founder of a software company called Wingman. Yeah, I read that. I, I she, listened to that interview. It was great. Yeah. At 16, her parents sent her, or with, with their support, she went to Singapore to school. But she said what kept her motivated was trying to prove her parents right. And I thought that was powerful. And your, your story kind of resonated with me for the same reason. It's that when you talk about believing in somebody, it's, it's, not a, it's, it's, it's not necessarily a push as in, there you go, I believe in you. It's like, I believe in you. Now come up here, um, yeah. which is more powerful. 
Well, it's interesting because I think some people are motivated by proving other people wrong. Yeah. And I think some people are motivated by living up to the expectations and proving people right. But yeah. there's probably something deeper there, too, that allows for either motivation to, to, to take root sure. and grow. Yeah. And, and yeah. Th- that's a harder one to tap into. But yeah. there's, there's something there, too. Tell me, who, who in life inspires you the most? Uh, who in life inspires me the most? Past or present? Well, obviously my parents, we've, I think we've gone there. I think that's that's mm. been pretty mm. inspiring. I've, I've had some uncles over the years too. My uncle Pete, the guy I was named after, he was a business owner, small business owner, gave me a shot mm. at doing some pretty weird jobs over the summer, like fixing AC units and in elementary schools and and you know put me in some pretty interesting positions pretty early on my other uncle chris he allowed me to work at a power plant one summer 84 hours a week trying to figure out how to help people take apart a power plant put it back together again and 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 i saw again how they believed that i could do some stuff that and i was the youngest person in both jobs and so there, there was a lot of people, a lot of family, a lot of friends growing up that mm. my dad and my mom put me in touch with that mm. were very motivating. It was, just, it, it allowed me to experience things I wouldn't have other experienced. And then, of course, you get into the the Sandler world that we're in, and the motivations are just coming at us from all directions, almost on a daily basis. Whether it's our clients or uh, Paul, I, I've heard talks you've given that have been very, very motivating on how you've grown your business too. And I think we all learn from each other and it becomes this, mm. this motivation where we just keep climbing together, which is partially why we named the book that, Making the Climb. Mm. Maybe it's a good time to talk about that. There's, a, uh, there's, there's, there's your book, Making the Climb. Tell me what inspired you to write it. Well, I've been fortunate to work with a lot of organizations that are in hyper growth mode. And because of that, there's a need to promote from within. And a lot of times you're promoting people into that first management role and they're taking people that excelled in the role that they were in. And all of a sudden they have to manage people and experiencing that firsthand in my mid twenties, it's not an easy gig to to get your first time. And a lot of times there's not a lot of knowledge going into the role before you get it. So I wanted to dissect that a little bit and then help folks become a little bit more proactive when they're about to get their first leadership role, especially sales leadership mm. role. Mm. So I wanted to talk about some of the pitfalls and some of the, some of the successes on how you can make that first year successful. And I also wanted to give leaders that have been around a while the ability to coach people that are going to go into that position. Mm. What's the biggest barrier, do you think, somebody growing into a leadership position is it conceptual or technical is it how they see themselves or they just don't have the skills for that role yes i think it's a bit of both i think well in in my my first sales leadership role i was about 27 28 and all of a sudden i'm managing a hundred million dollar business and 20 something reps and two-thirds of them are older than i was so i had some conceptual issues going on there because I, I wasn't even sure I deserved the role at the time. And how can I help these people that have way more experience than I do 
So there's some definite issues there on the conceptual side, but also I, I didn't know what the hell I was doing either. So there were some technical issues going on. So, and it, it results in all kinds of problems. I, I was definitely good mm. at selling. Like there's a reason why I got the gig, but it wasn't because I was mm. good at managing people. That wasn't why mm. I got it. Mm. And how did, you, how did you overcome those? How did you, how did you in, get into, first of all, inhabiting the role comfortably so you felt like you should be in that role? And then the skills, on the job, training, combination of both, help me just, talk me through the transition, I guess. Yeah, I had a, a couple of really good mentors, which I'm, I'm sure you're not surprised that, that I had that. But mm. a couple of really good mentors. One of them is a gentleman by the name of George Donovan. And he, he was my mentor throughout my technology sales career. And then he went off and started a Sandler franchise and he left the organization I was in three years before I did. But I knew at some point if I was going to go do the Sandler thing, I was going to do it with George. So three years later, I bought 1% of his franchise. And that's how the Sandler thing got started. But he was he was a great leader. And he, he taught me a lot and allowed me to grow in that position. And he gave me the confidence to, to make some of my own mistakes and create my own path. But he also helped me avoid a few along the way too. So that, that was a big part of it. And frankly, our, our team taught me a lot of lessons too. I, I'd go to my team and I'd say things like, I know you're, you're a successful rep. What can I do to help remove some of those barriers to allow you to become more successful? So it, it was more of a, a servant leader role in a lot of cases with the folks that have been around a while. And then over mm -hmm. time, it became more mutual but in the beginning, mm. I was there to service them, it, not, not the other way around. Mm. Mm. I, I want to ask you about the 1% in a moment. I'm wondering is if that, that servant leadership, you fed into that because you felt you didn't have the experience to kind of show the path because you hadn't been there. And all you could do is say, you know, is how, how can I help carry your bag rather than there's the, there's the path. I'm just wondering what was going through your mind at that time. Yeah, my, my role before I got that was with complex selling. Mm. And our team did a little bit of that. And then a lot of account management, somewhat transactional, more contract management selling. So there, there was some value I could provide on, on the complex side, which mm. was good. So that, that allowed me to get some trust. But then I had to learn the other part of the business almost mm. on the fly. And then a lot of that came through those interactions with our team. So it, mm. it, but I think trust definitely goes in both directions. And I think one of the things that, frankly, about being a mentor is you don't, you don't get to say you're a mentor. The mentee gets to tell you you're a mentor. So it, that's almost what happens in the leadership capacity. Like they had to respect me as the supervisor because, you know, I was the one that was their manager, but they didn't have to, view me as a mentor or a coach that had to be earned mm. so over time that's that's the way it went sometimes they were coaching mm. me sometimes I was coaching them yeah. but we were doing it for a mutually beneficial reason like we, yeah. we wanted to see our team be successful we wanted to get mm. the best out of everybody and all grow together mm. and I think to this day that's how I try to manage my my team is the same mm. way like I'm, I'm constantly learning mm. from my team now mm. I'm interested, I said about the 1% for this reason, it's a very small amount percentage-wise. Um, 
Who is that more important to? Excuse me, <clears throat> you or George? Well, it me. was George, you said, right? It was, yep. Yeah, George, it was yeah. More important it was more to important to you. Why? Yeah, when I left the company I was with, I was pretty pretty high up in the organization, had a good title, mm. making a lot of money, at least at the time what I thought was a lot of money. Mm. Now I've got a different view on that, but at the time I thought it was a lot of money. And um, I wouldn't do it unless I was part owner. It just it was who knows maybe it was a trap maybe it was a slight ego thing but i, I wanted to mm. go own a business i didn't want to go mm. do anything other than that so that mm. and george wanted the same thing we built a plan where over time when i hit goals i could earn in more buy in more and mm. we both knew when i joined that at some point he was going to leave before i did and then i'd get the rest mm. of the business so mm. i was his succession plan and he wanted me yeah. He wanted me involved just as much as I wanted to be involved, so it was a win-win. Mm. Yeah, I'm wondering then: is it is it? It's not nothing to do with the percentage itself, because you could buy shares in a, in any company that's on the stock market, and you have a percentage share of that company. But it's more about the story and the evolution and where that one percent is going to go. That it was only the a kind of a stepping stone into something bigger. Would that be it? A was fair? it was more about yeah. the partnership next steps. Yeah. Than it than it was, the one percent. But okay. Yeah, I probably I, wouldn't have done it I, though if it wasn't for the one percent. No, I get that. I, I I can understand it. Um, I have a question that I've been meaning to ask you, and because um, I I had a remember a video conference call with you. It's pre-pandemic, so four or five years ago. And you were in Hawaii at the time. You were living in Hawaii. And you had moved there. That was a conscious move. Yep. And I remember you were up at the crack of dawn. Like the sun hadn't, it was just barely coming up over the horizon. And, and you turned the camera around so I could see it. And it was this island coming up out of the sea. I remember thinking, that's it. That, that's it. He, he's, that's the dream. And you probably felt that way at the time as well. But then you left. And you went to Florida. Why? <laughs> Why did I do that? Well, I, so maybe I should start with why we went to begin with and then why. Mm. So Lisa and I, we, we honeymooned in Hawaii. That's my wife, Lisa. Mm. And we kept going back every year. And at one point we were just like, you know what? We're going to live there someday. Like when our kid the, on the vision board was when our two kids who are now nine and 10, when they go to college, that's, we drop them off second semester when it's cold in Boston, we're going to go live in Maui for three months a year. Like that was the plan. Mm. And it was so clear. And so and we knew it was going to, going to happen, but we're like, why are we, it was, I was almost living for 12 years, 13 years down the road. It became too much about the destination and not enough about the journey. Mm. So we just sped it up. We're like, let's, you know what? Let's sell everything. Let's just go to Maui. Let's live there three to five years. Let's experience it while our kids are young. And then we're probably going to come back before they hit middle school and before our parents get older. So that was the plan. We was, it was supposed to be a five-year decision. And it turned into a three-year, three-and-a-half-year decision. Uh, COVID sped it up a little bit because we, we couldn't see our family like we wanted to. And it was very isolating. We love living there. I miss it terribly. Mm. But it was time to come back and be closer to family. 
so we we moved back to Florida to be closer, right next to Lisa's parents, and hopefully soon my parents will be down here too. That makes perfect sense. And you're up in Sarasota way, right? We are, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a lovely part. So yeah, no, I can understand. I can understand this. Florida is 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 a you know lovely parts of Florida. Um, so that m makes sense. Makes sense because it is so far away. But it's like I was looking at it on the map. There's Boston. There's Hawaii, and then there's Florida is down here. Like it's they're big moves, and you don't I, take them I, I lightly. Couldn't, I, guess. I couldn't come back to to the cold and not play golf all year round. I just couldn't do it. So. Yeah. So we pick Florida to be close to some family, and then we can yeah. get up to Boston really easy. We're, and mm. we, we're going up there for a month next month. So mm. we've, mm. my vision board this year had about forty-five people on it, because it was all about getting reconnected with family and friends. And I've already seen all forty-five of them in the first five months wow. of the year. So that's like that's really what it's all about now for us. It's less about the beauty of the things around us, and it's more about the experiences with our yeah. friends and family. Yeah. Tell me, and what you're doing currently, and I know you've got your fingers in a number of pies business-wise, um, what's giving you the greatest sense of satisfaction? Well, it, we've, we've dis, I don't know if disrupted is the right word, but we've, we've done a really good job of helping very large companies implement sales methodologies. Mm. And our team that we've put together that's doing this is is phenomenal. And so I love seeing my team grow and I love seeing these clients grow and kind of pushing the envelope on how that happens. Mm. And it it Sandler is just such a it's such a great gift that's been given to me and to be able to pass that along to our clients and then do it in an authentic way because we're selling exactly how we train and we're training exactly how we sell. But to see that come to fruition is, is it's really rewarding. Mm. I can see that. And if you were, and I'm going to take golf off the table for a moment. If you were retired in the morning, that's it. You're no more, no more work work, no more professional. We can't get paid for work. What would you spend your time on? Well, I, I would I would do some golf there. That would be part of it uh, for sure. I, I know you would do. I I know that as I said, put that to one yeah, side. Yeah. yeah. No, I the, I mean, I would do what I'm doing. Like this, helping individuals and organizations get better at mm. at growing. Mm. And I love I love helping other business owners do it, especially folks that mm. do what you like what you and I do. I love that. Mm. But I also really love trying to figure out the puzzle of helping a, a large, especially technology company, figure out how to get the most out of their teams. Like it's, it's mm. fun. Like I don't, I don't view work mm. as work. Mm. What do you see as the greatest challenges facing sales teams in 2022? Whew, that's a good question. I think. I mean, we've all, I don't think any of us have, have been immune to this roller coaster ride that we've been on the last two, three years with mm. the way things have changed and evolved. And we've been hiding behind these screens. In some ways, it's been great because it's, it's made things so much more efficient and it probably has allowed us to scale 
our thought process at least in our relationships in ways that we couldn't have done otherwise. But now we're, we're going back to this point where we have to find some, some new balance and the pendulum is going to swing back in the other direction. And I don't necessarily know that any of us know like what the right mix is yet. And we're all trying yeah. to figure that out. So how do you maximize this virtual selling world that we're all in? But then remember that relationship building and face to face can still be an asset can still be important. Mm -hmm. And the, the only, the only asset that's finite really is time. So we've been given this gift of leveraging virtual to help with this time related issue that we all have, but then we now need to balance it with getting back out there again. So it's, mm. I think trying to maximize that is, is a challenge we all have right now. And it's, it's, mm. that has also been fun. Like I said, I've seen 47 yeah. people. We just had two client events in two different cities in yeah. the last week. And it's, it, that was amazing. So it's, it's yeah. good to see that pendulum swing back a little bit. Yeah. I want to talk to you about that a little bit because um, and maybe it's a bubble that I've been living in for quite a while and that Ireland is very much a, uh, a, a European hub for inside sales organizations. And so from the time I got into this business or shortly after, most of my work came from teams that only ever sold virtually. Not even, okay, remotely I think is probably a better term. But it was just, it wasn't done over Zoom, it was just done over the phone mostly. And then they might bring in whiteboards and the odd one would use Zoom or something like that. But it, it, it just wasn't imposed on us, it was something people chose. And that, I remember when I started, inside sales, was, they were really appointment setters. But that role grew and grew as people realized, you know what, you can do this. You can go the entire sales process from finding a lead to closing it and you can do it over the phone. But it was a slow evolution as people got more comfortable with that idea. Um, so I, I, what I, where I wanted to talk to you about was, in essence, is doing, you know, are we going back to something different or are we just giving an extra dimension to remote selling, i.e. the video element of it and doing it from our homes more than we might have done it from the office, but essentially for inside the technology bubble, remote is is the dominant way to sell it, i mean you know what inside sales guys wanted to become outside sales guys and then the pandemic hit and now outside sales guys have to learn to become inside sales guys yeah. but that that's the buckets of those two terms don't make any sense anymore it's it's not about that at all it's more about the type of sale that you're doing, the type of clients that you're interacting with, the type of mm. buying personas, people that you're trying to, to help and sell to. Mm. And th that skill set needs to evolve, but it has very little to do with inside and outside. It's like, that's, mm. that's like kind of irrelevant now. Anybody that is the old school outside sales guy that's showing up with coffee and you know, that, that was, that was dead years ago before the pandemic even hit. And, that relationships, not that relationships aren't important, but that's not why you win deals. You win deals because mm. you figured out what the clients need, not just because mm. you're well liked. Mm. So that, that, that was gone years ago anyway. So I think it was good in a way because it's, it's taken the emphasis off the way organizations think about that and it, and they've evolved it and it's now more about, okay, well, mm. what's the type of client we're calling on? And how complex mm. is their buying process? And, and, and then they're mm. mapping their teams to that 
versus saying inside, outside and all that. It just doesn't really matter anymore. Yeah. How do sales leaders, how have they adapted to managing remotely? Because that's not something they would have been used to pre-pandemic. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting. I think same thing, like from a time management perspective, it's, it's, it's great from a bonding and rapport perspective. It's tougher mm. from an accountability perspective. It can be easier, can be tougher. Mm. You have to change your, your mindset on, on what's important when it comes to leading and, mm. and, but you know what? I, I was, I was living in Maui for three years, managing a team, none of which lived on Maui. So for me, it was just like, yeah. just the way it happens anyway. It doesn't, it, it's not, not any different. So it, mm. I never really felt like it was this big hurdle we had to overcome mm. Mm. other than just telling your people to turn your cameras on now. You know what I mean? Like there's mm. like little things that, that happen there. But then of course that evolved and it became easier to do and there's more tools associated with doing it. And your, your team meeting structure is going to change and the importance of not canceling on stuff like that because you can't do the stop and chats, that's going to change. So there's little tweaks along the yeah. way that we all had to do. But yeah, anybody that, that has a problem with it is probably just using it as an excuse to live in the past. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Uh, tell me, if you were Secretary of State for Education, what subject would you make mandatory uh, in in the school system, the kind of teenage years, whatever you call that. Hmm. Teenage years. Well, in well, I'll answer it a couple of ways. In in college at in, in university, it always bothered me how they most universities thought "sell" was a four letter word. There's, there's not a lot of universities that embrace the selling profession and it's, it's the most high, it's the highest earning profession in the world and they don't embrace it. They, if, if at best they hide behind it and call it marketing, which is also important, but it's not selling, it's different. So it would be pretty cool if they actually had a, a, a selling major in every college. So, but that, that's, that would help a lot because there's there's some head trash around that just in general i think earlier how to manage money i think as a high school age student how to think about investing how to plan for the future how to understand what motivates you like some of those softer oh. skills around like managing your life like get that out there early on so they're not scared of that i would yeah. i would definitely say that would be pretty helpful yeah. as a high school mm. student mm. i wonder on your comment about sales not being on any college curriculum is because that's that's a global thing it's the same here same across europe um is that something to do with some academic resentment that you don't need any qualifications to out earn those with phds maybe maybe i mm. i think if your you ego is attached to your qualifications uh which i can understand you put a ton of work into getting them and then somebody comes along without any qualifications and is earning five, ten x what you're getting. That has to. Well, be. that just, I, just I shows you where the value is coming from. You know, nothing happens mm. unless somebody sells something in an organization. It just, mm. It's just the way it is. So, 
mean, yeah. we've, we've done some work with technology incubators and you get these really smart founders of companies that went to MIT and all these places and they've got a really good product mm. and they believe that it's just going to come off the shelf in some magical, mystical way. Mm. And then sooner or later, they realize that that's not necessarily the case. And the sooner they get that lesson, the better off they're going to be. Because yeah. somebody in that organization is going to have to know how to help that thing disappear off the shelves. Yeah. And that's going to be a combination of business development, of marketing, of sales. And knowing that when you were at the university would, would, would have been helpful. Yeah. It's true. I also, I learned years ago that you cannot approach, from our perspective in Sandra business, a founder of a tech startup within a year is pointless because in their mind when they start out their baby is the most beautiful baby on the planet and everybody will want to pick that baby up and take the baby home and they have to have at least a year of rejection under their belt before they kind of scratch their head and going okay I give up I this is not working out or when they hire their first maybe they're good at selling because they they have the story and they have the passion that goes with the story and that in itself can particularly with early adopters can definitely get you over the line but when they then try to scale that and realize that the people they're hiring don't have the same passion and certainly don't have the story, they don't have nothing. And they don't have anything. that's when they struggle. Yep. And, yeah. and then they start saying, well, why can't they sell like I do? Why can't yeah, they? Yeah. Well, yeah. That's, yeah. there's a lot of reasons why that's not the case. Yeah. Describe for me uh, your, your wish, your hope for the future world your kids will inhabit. Well, that's, I mean, that's, that's a really loaded question. I got to tell you, obviously there's a lot going on in the world these days. I, mm. I would, I mean, I, I believe that I didn't come from money. I didn't, I didn't come from there. And, and I believe that people's success in life is within them to, to achieve it regardless of where they came from. So it's like, how do we, get to a place where the only, the only label that anybody cares about is the individual themselves, period. End of story. Isn't that what Martin Luther King said? Yes. And, mm. and if, if we're at a place where, where that's, that's how people are judged simply by the mm. person that they are, then that's the mm. world I would like my kids to grow up in. Mm. Mm. You said something that I wanted to just touch on for a second. You said you didn't come from money. Uh, and that didn't stop you, perhaps even helped you. And I often ask this, and it's not just you, but it's anybody who's been successful. How do you then give that, how do you create an environment for your children so they have to not take what you've earned for granted? So you, yeah, you protect them and make sure they have everything they need, but at the same time, they have to go out and prove themselves and, and earn their way as well. Because the easiest thing would be just to, you know, pay for their college. And maybe if your dad had the money and had done that, that would have robbed you of a hugely important uh, sense of both confidence in yourself and learning that persistence pays, etc. I, I wonder if you ever thought about that. Yeah, I, I have. And it's, it's, it's a tough thing because you don't, you know, part of why we do what we do is to make sure that our, our, our people around us are very happy and 
they have what they want and but you got to get them to go out and make a lemonade stand and you got to tell them that well those lemons cost money you got to sell it for more than what the lemon costs mm. and well how much do you want to make and why do you want to make it and what are you going to do with it and it, so mm. they they have to understand the value of hard work mm. whether they get it through sports or they get it through trying to figure out entrepreneurial mm. things mm. and it it's a balance I think about because I, they don't, we probably do spoil a little bit more than we should. You know what I mean? Like we probably do. Yeah. Do yeah, that no, I get it. yeah. In the same, in the same time, it's like, well, how do you teach them lessons along the way too? And, and put yeah. them in those positions. Yeah. Maybe I can get your opinion you. on that. Cause your kids are slightly <laughs> older than my kids. So maybe I can learn some lessons for you on that, Paul. Mm. Well, listen, it's uh, the reason why I ask, I said, I think we all face that uh, in, in this world because there, there are, you know, I'm glad I didn't have social media as a child, as a teenager. I'm glad it didn't exist. I think there's a ton of pressures that they face and there's a lot going on and it's easy to be confused and it's very hard. And so, yeah, it's just a conscious thing that you're, you're constantly kind of looking around the corner to make sure there's nothing too dangerous, but at the same time, they have to walk into the wall occasionally, right, and, and hurt their nose. Um, but anyway, I'm just conscious of time, Pete, and I want to respect your, your, your time on this. So two very quick questions left for you. Uh, first one is Desert Island. If you could only, you're going to be marooned. You don't know how long you're going to be there for. What one thing, it can't be a person, what one thing would you take with you? Can't be a person. No. One thing. Mm-hmm. Have to be some sort of ball, soccer ball, maybe. I, I, I mean, it probably should be like um, sunscreen or something. But I go with soccer <laughs> ball. <laughs> so you went to you, you were sidetracked by the practicality question and you know no, screw that. I want to entertain myself and have some yeah it's going to be boring here. by myself I need something for sure do. it is absolutely you're dead right you're dead right so final question uh, we know you've written the book making the climb from salesperson to sales manager and beyond if there's a time in your life or when you leave this planet and there's a book written about your life what would you like the title of it to be I actually like the title that I have making the climb like that's like that's how I view view my life is like what's the next step going to be and yeah you know we're not going to camp we're going to keep climbing and then see where we end up but that i actually love that title from for my book we'll keep it we'll just call it the second edition there you go all right or in in, in brackets now in the next life <laughs> close bracket yeah good paul yeah i love it yeah pete oliver thank you so much for being my guest today it's been an absolute joy getting to know you that little bit better thank you for sharing your time with me Thanks, Paul. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's great to be here. Hopefully I'll see you in November. Looking forward to it.